This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 20 of Equestrian Legends, presented by Pessoa. Hello, I'm Chris Stafford, and my guest this week is British show jumper David Broom. But first, a message from our sponsor. The name Pessoa is legendary in equestrian circles. During his phenomenally successful career as a rider, Nelson Pessoa set his sights on creating the ultimate in saddle design. Not satisfied with the perfection of balance, aesthetics and craftsmanship, Nelson's goal was to provide riders of every level the opportunity to train and compete in a true competition-level saddle. A saddle that would be an aid to their balance and riding style, while offering a comfortable fit for most any horse. Most importantly, Nelson felt that the saddle was a tool that riders should not miss out on because of price. With these goals, the modern-day Pessoa was born and has come to encompass saddles, strap goods, horse boots and blankets. You can find out more about all of these products by visiting the website at PessoaUSA.com. David McPherson Broom was born on March 1, 1940 in Cardiff, Wales, to Frederick and Millie Broom. One of four children, his father was an abiding influence in his career from an early age, and he soon inherited the values of true horsemanship, as well as the will to win. While still in his teens, he was already a leading money winner in the UK, and by the age of 20, he was winning international Grand Prix. He rode in four Olympic Games, from 1960, when he won an individual bronze with Sunsolve, to the 1968 Olympics with Mr. Softie, then to Munich in 1972 with Manhattan and a fourth place at the 1988 Games in Seoul aboard Countryman. He was twice European champion in 1967 and 69 with Mr. Softy, as well as team gold medalist in 1961 with Sunsalve. He holds the record for wins in the King George V Gold Cup for six years on six different horses between 1960 and 1991. His World Championship medal tally is two golds and two bronzes from 1970 in La Ball with Beethoven to 1978 aboard Filco in Aachen with Mr. Ross in 1982 in Dublin and Stockholm in 1990 with Lanigan. He was chairman of the British Show Jumping Association from 1996 to 1997 and he remains a member of the BSJA Executive Board and chairman of the Performance Development International Committee. He was chosen the BBC Sports Personality of the Year in 1960 and Welsh Sports Personality of the Year in 1970. His contribution to the sport established him as a national treasure for which he was recognised with both an OBE and later a CBE by Queen Elizabeth. David owns and manages the David Broom Event Centre near Chepstow in Wales. He is married to Liz, nay Fletcher, and the couple have three sons, Matthew, Richard and James, and three grandchildren. Well, David, thank you for joining me. 
I'm delighted to have you on the show because you have such an amazing record in the sport. But uh, before we go back, I'd like to just look at what you're doing now because you've built quite a business there in Wales, haven't you? Uh, yes, we got um, we, we, we we got what well, we call it the David Broom Event Centre, and um, we run all sorts of equestrian activities, um, catering for the low, you know, the the, the newcomers right up to the European trials for, for young riders and, and second rounds and things like that. So we're busy about 28 weekends in the year. So lots of shows, and you're also with your livery centre. I think your son Matthew is involved with that too, isn't he? Yes, and Matthew does the riding, and, um, and we produce youngsters with Francois Matty from Belgium, and... Um, and James does the driving with the, with the pony pairs. Right. So quite the family concern, and you haven't even considered retirement. Doesn't seem to come into your vocabulary. I think to do nothing would be. I mean, I, I mean, I think you'd curl up and die if you had nothing to do when you got up. Are you still riding? No, I'm, I've hardly ridden now for the last four or five years. Do you miss that part of it, David? No, because it was a job of work, really, to do. Um, people say, well, why don't you ride for pleasure? And I always say, well, I never did ride for pleasure. So, I mean, yeah, I think I've done my lot in the saddle, to be honest. And uh, I go with Matthew, and we have a lot of fun produ- producing youngsters and whatever. And um, and, I, and I go to the, the driving shows with James. So, And we've got the shows at home, so, you know, I'm up to my neck in horses anyway. Yes. Now, do you but, get on the box seat? I, I do sometimes, especially. I mean, I, I, I'm not a backstepper or anything like that. But I mean, I love what going to, go, going to. And I love the ambience of the driving world, really, because it's a lot more relaxed than the jumping one. Now, what about the teaching? Though you're still involved in in a sense with the teaching and development. I mean, I do my bit when I have to, but it it, it, it doesn't really appeal to me too much. I must be honest. Um, I like to do my own thing when I get up. Uh, you, you're going to be too committed when you're teaching and all this. And I mean, I'll do it if if somebody sort of hammers at the door and that sort of thing. But Matthew does a lot of teaching, and James does his driving, and I do my tractor driving, and I'm a bit of a golfer really to go and get this and go and get that and go and get everything else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure a little bit more than that, David. And you you mentioned there your partnership with Francois Matty mm-hmm. from Belgium, and that goes back a while, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I've known Francois for zonks, and um, he finds the youngsters, and we produce them and send them back to him, and, um, you know, hopefully it works quite well. Yes, um, one I should imagine it does with your eye for a horse. Well, we're going to take you back a little bit further now, David, if we may, because you were born in 1940 in Cardiff, so a Welshman through and through, aren't you? Oh, yes. But without the accent, not too, never too much of an accent there, was there? No, um, I mean, Monmouthshire, I think, it's just a little, it's on the border of Wales. And I don't think people have much of an accent, you know, especially on the, east, on the east side of Monmouthshire. Right. Um, so, you know, we're fairly free from a Welsh accent as such. Well, now, you're one of four children born to Fred and, and Millie. Let's t- talk a little bit about those early days, because your father, of course, was a great horseman himself and, a, and must have been a tremendous influence in your early career. Oh, there's no question. I mean, if it hadn't been for my dad, I don't suppose we'd have ever ridden, really. Um, but, you know, he, he used to deal in ponies. And I suppose it was natural that we sort of used to get on and do our bit. And, you know, then we had a couple of jumping, we had a jumping pony. And then we had three jumping ponies. Then we had a couple more when my sister started taking it, you know, jumping. And um, 
But up till I was 20, we didn't have a horse that cost more than 60 quid, I don't think, on the place. So um, everything was made. Now, what's his, what was his background, David? How, how did horses come into your father's life? Well, I think my granddad, he, he, he used to be a chauffeur uh, of, the, of, the, of the vet down in Pembrokeshire. Especially at night, he'd take the vet out and, you, you know, drive him, drive him to the farm where he had to go. And I think my father just, he just loved horses. And, you know, he was, he, he was a wiry fellow, my dad. And, you know, he reputed that, you know, when he, on the way home from school, he'd see ponies in the field. He'd go and catch one and ride it round bareback. <laughs> but um, he was a fantastic judge of a horse, my dad. And, um, you, know, you know, I think I, my sister and I, we both owe everything to him, really. But Liz has often said that you were the one with the talent, the natural talent in the family. Were there expectations of you then as a boy, when, as a very young child, to, to get on a pony and, uh, you know, have some fun? Well, it was, I mean, when we used to go to the pony shows, we always had to try and make it pay. You know, I mean, um, the odd blank day, we tried to be as, as remote as we possibly could. We had to sort of win our entrance fee money back, get the petrol money back as it was in those days. And if we could show a bit of a profit, um, it was always very serious. We didn't like getting beaten, and um, and that's where we learned the business. And father was our mentor, and uh, you know, we, I mean, I don't think we hardly ever rode without having a lesson, so to speak, from him. I mean, he was even with me in the world championships in, when I was thirty. You know, keeping an eye on me and telling me to do this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. So, um, you, 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 you know, so. It, it was, we had instruction from the very beginning, uh, probably by the best. Well, you certainly did. When you mentioned making a profit out of those very early shows as a child, I've heard do, if you did the winning, you'd have to buy the chips on the way home. Well, it was either, way, I mean, if we did well, it was always fish and chips on the way home. <laughs> Otherwise, it was, <laughs> we had to miss. <laughs> but we knew where every chip shop was in Wales, that's for I sure. I bet you did. Yeah. <laughs> so clearly you were very competitive then from a very, very early age. Do you remember when you first got on a horse or a pony? Father used to break Welsh mountain ponies in and, I mean, I used to ride them. And I think when I was about five or six, I got bucked off once too many. So I, at that point, I retired. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I retired for about 18 months. Then he had a nice little bay pony called Beauty. And I rather fancied a ride on there. And as they say, the rest just carried on from that point, really. When? I can still remember the first jump I ever had was out hunting uh, with a cur, and it was a post and rails into a wood. And my father, we were sort of, got, you know, waiting outside the cover, and hounds found. And father said, well, you better go around that field there, up through and in, in, in the gate into the wood around, around the far side. I said, well, where are you going? He said, over there, over that post and rails. I said, well, if you're going there, so am I. And he was about three foot six high. I mean, it just tells you what bravery can do, or, or stupidity, rather. And um, I, that was my first jump. I jumped in and stayed on. So um, that was the very first jump I ever had. So you decided then at an early age to be competitive, did you, David? Or was it because, you know, Les was keen and your father was encouraging you? Was that sort of a natural thing to take it into the show ring and become to, a, a show I jumper? Think, I think so. I mean, my sister was as keen as mustard. I mean, I only had to look the other way and she'd nick one of my ponies. Um, <laughs> She was a top of blooming monkey for that. Um, but, um, you know, my, my father was keen. I mean, you, you know, if you had a fence down, it was analysed and, 
you know, or you'd left, you left, you loosed its head, or you didn't kick, or you didn't do this, or you didn't do that. And um, I was very lucky in a way. I had three ponies. Um, one was a short tail cob called Chocolate, and he used to just go on a, a totally consistent stride, never varying it. The second pony was, was Nutshell. That was a very old-fashioned pony. It had to be held back, and you got three strides, and you kicked it in, and that was the old English way of riding. And they had another little pony, a grey pony called Ballon Lad, and he used to go like the clappers and scotch up. And uh, I think I went to three shows where there was only four competitors in the ring, in the, in the class. I had three of them, and I finished up jumping nine clear rounds. So you know, I had variety to ride and the opportunity. And you certainly had the variety throughout your life. You produced so many good horses, David, I want to talk about in a minute. But first of all, I want to just get a sense of what kind of a scholar David Broom was. Were you keen on school, or was it just something you had to do before you got back to the ponies? My mother was very insistent that I went to, to, to uh, had a good schooling. She said, well, that will be with you for the rest of your life. And um, I finished up at Monmouth Grammar School, and um, I think I got seven, seven O-levels. But I do remember that, that they, they, were, they weren't very keen on Dee Broom making a career out of horses. So whenever they asked me what I wanted to do, I, I sort of found out that if I said I wanted to be a vet with my background, they were quite happy and they got off my back. So um, I went through school with them believing I always wanted to be a vet. And I never did. Um, and I used to work out. We used to have to go to school on a Saturday morning. And um, it was, it, it was, it, I worked out a, a, a system where on my last couple of years there, the last two lessons on a Saturday, I, I think you, you called them private study or some PS, private studies. And uh, I worked out that if I did geography and I did something else, the last two lessons on a Saturday were, were private study, so I could always get away 80 minutes early to go to the shows. And my mother used to pick me up, and uh, we'd do the shows, come back, and nobody knew I was miss- I'd been missing, you know. Right. How far away so, did you live from school then? You said your mother picked you up. Uh, well, it's about 20 miles from here, right. to Monmouth. So you've never really moved far, uh, far away at all, have you, apart from your oh, travels? No. You- no, no, was, you know, I mean, we've, we've, farm, we've been here since I was eight, I think it was. So, um, you know, we've been, I've been fairly stationary. So once you'd finished school then, David, was it just expected that you would take on the, the family love of horses and make a career of it? Well, I was very lucky. When my first year out of ponies, father bought... Uh, a horse called Wildfire. It was actually a grade A at the time, but he wasn't going very well. And um, we bought him, we hunted him that winter. And uh, the first show I took him to was at Glanesk, and he got eliminated. That was his problem. Father was never so keen on the horse, really. He was a funny, funny fellow. And he was very fussy about the top of his head. Very temperamental. But I seemed to get on all right with him. Anyway, he went to the first show, he stopped. So we had a bit of a... <laughs> a reassessment of the situation, as you might say. And the second show I went to with him, the first day I had four faults, and the second day he won three classes. And, you know, we sort of moved on from there, really. And he was, I think he was top horse in, in the country that year. Was it always going to be show jumping then, David? You know, when you were in your formative years, did you, you didn't think, oh, I'll have a go at eventing or racing oh, or something else. Oh, they're, they're mad. <laughs> the eventers, I mean, I, I mean, sure, to do a bounce into a lake... I could only see danger there. 
<laughs> I mean, they, they must be either terribly brave or very confident. But whatever it is, it, I didn't have it. So it never, it never entered my head to do anything else besides show jumping, right. I must be honest. So you galloped down to a water knowing that you were going to jump it, not go in it? Well, yeah, I, I mean, you never... I think you have to be mad to try and tackle something which when you knew your, if you knew your horse couldn't do it. You know, that, that, you, you've got to know your horse and what you're putting him to. And, you know, if you, if you do your job right, hopefully he'll do his, you know. And, um, I mean, that's the way you survive, really. It's when you, you expect him to jump something, he's got no hope of jumping. That's when you get into trouble. Now, I'm sure it became a natural progression for you to go from competing nationally to internationally. But do you remember those early days of when you realized, gosh, I'm actually competing internationally? This is the big time. Yeah, I could have gone to um, yeah, I could have gone to Dublin. I think when I was nineteen, and my father wouldn't let me go because he said I wasn't ready for it, which is contrary to what everybody else does these days. You know, yes. Uh, oh, we just want to go abroad. Want to go abroad? Father said, until you can win at home, you're not going abroad. That's the end of it. He said, no going, no point going over there and wasting your time. And that, that was the sort of the background that we had. Well, of course, he was a mentor, but were there any other riders that you aspired to be, David, in those years when you were watching the sport as a young man? Ah, very good question. Absolutely spoilt with a lady called Pat Smythe. She lived about 40 miles away, and she used to venture into Wales every so often. And I used to admire her beyond, because she, she, uh, her, her technique of jumping, I reckon, was the most efficient way of doing it. And... You know, and she used to ride little short, short striding cobs and whatever, but she could make it, and I thought, that's the way to do it. How would you characterize her style then, David, for those who are not familiar with her? She was, a, she, she was you know, before a, before a time, really, but, I mean, she had a little horse called Flanagan, a little short leg cob, and she'd come, come in with, him, with his hocks underneath him, and she'd always be taken off on a shortening stride. And... Um, I mean, she had a technique, that was her technique, her style in the saddle was, you know, so modern to what they used to be in those days. She never flipped her legs up over the saddle or anything. She sat square in the saddle, always going forward, a tremendous eye. And, and yeah, I just consider myself very lucky to be able to watch her go. And taking you, obviously, further down that international road, you got onto the teams. Who were your early memories and members of those teams um, that you competed on, David? Well, in the early days, Pat was on the team. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very encouraging. So Harry Llewellyn was always very encouraging to me, to be fair. Um, always, he supported me all his life, so Harry did. Another, Welsh, those, another Welshman, of course. Absolutely. He lived, he lived about 18 mile away, he did. And... Um, but, the, I mean, the David Barkers and um, Wilf White, I don't think I ever went on a team with Wilf White, to be fair. But Anne Townsend, Anne Backhouse, mm -hmm. um, she was on the team and, you know, we, we set off and we, we, we did, Wiz Barden was my first show and that's where I came across Alvin Schockermuller for the first time. And that was a bit of a head-to-head, -head, that was, because he beat me the first day, I beat him the second day. Third day for the Grand Prix, he went, then I went and beat him. And an American guy called Bill Steinkraus, which you hardly ever heard of, came and put, the, put manners on the pair of us. <laughs> uh, that's the point of my first, first encounter with uh, Bill Steinkraus, who was 
Yeah, he was a star on his own right, wasn't he? Totally. Well, certainly was, and has been a guest here on the programme. And, it, of course, there were so many top riders at that time, David. You were going head-to-head with on the team and, uh, of course, as an individual. But I want to talk about some of those horses that gave you such wonderful partnerships. You'll forever, of course, be remembered from Mr. Softy, but you have to tell us how you found him and why he was such a good partner to you. Um, that's a bit of luck, really, in a way. I mean, he'd won the Re- European Championship in about 63, 63 with David Barker, and um, things went... Um, I, don't, I don't know what happened with David, but um, he then went to uh, a gentleman called John Lanny, and we were at the, at the Royal International Show in about 65, I think it was, 1965, and John had a rotten fall on it. And I got asked to give the horse a bit of a pop in the collectoring after the fall to make sure he didn't, hadn't lost his confidence or anything. I mean, I was just pulled out of the crowd by my father and stuck on it and gave him a few pops and got off and went and had a Coca-Cola or whatever one does, and that was the end of that. And then about a week later, they rang me up and asked me if I wanted to ride the horse, and that's how that started. So I rode him for the next four years, and I won two Europeans on him, and Mexico, I mean, people don't realize, but Mr. Softy was the outstanding horse at Mexico. I mean, he was third in the individual, and he jumped two unbelievable rounds for four faults each in the team. And uh, he's by far the best horse there that year. But he didn't quite get the accolade he deserved, but he was a wonderful horse, a wonderful winner. Well, of course, before you got to Mexico, you rode in Rome in 1960 with another horse, Sun Selve. How did that partnership come about? As I said, we went on our first trip abroad to Wisbaden and, and Lucerne. and that was the Olympic year. And um, Pat Smythe had been given Sunsal that year to ride for, for Mr. Anderson from Norfolk. And we, went, we had a couple of Olympic trials in the country at that time. And um, one of them was at Cardiff. And uh, the... Um, Pat, Pat actually won the Olympic trial on him. I think I was second or something like that. Anyway, um, on the way home, my father said, well, he said, Pat won today on Sunsal, but he'll never go again for her. And it was that, uh, such a remarkable thing to say yeah. for somebody who'd won. I said, Pat, I don't know, how could you say that? He said, well, he said, I spotted something today where the horse, he knows he's got Pat. And lo and, lo and behold, the next show we went to was Wisbaden. And Lucerne, and he never he never went round the course with her, and um, the horse went. The, the, the um, selectors and Pat sent the horse back to Norfolk, and we used to sell a lot of ponies to a lady in Newmarket called Anne Hammond. She actually had over four hundred from us, and uh, when we were there the next time, Father said to Anne, "You know, did you did you know Mr. Anderson?" She said, "Yes." He said, "Well, do you think you could ring up and?" see if we could go and see him, which he did. He was very happy to meet us. We went to see him, and a little farmer. Father got on like a house on fire with Mr. Anderson, asked all the right questions, and uh, we collected the horse, and I started to ride him, and I rode him 1960 and 1961. I mean, I think this was in about July time. We took him to one show, and he went well. Went to the next little show, and he, he got eliminated. We persuaded the course builder to leave the jumps up. This little show at Pontypridd up in the valleys after the Gymkhana classes. And uh, we went in and 
we got him round on the Saturday. On the on the on the Monday, we were at the Royal Royal International Horse Show. He came second to the Horse Noun Cup the first night. He slipped up on the flat. There was only two clear rounds jumped, and um, and on the Wednesday night he won the King's Cup. I mean, from like five weeks before the Olympics, he was suddenly the number one, you know, prospect really. It's extraordinary and, um, how perceptive yeah, your father was about him. Absolutely. And, um, I mean, the two weeks later, we went to Dublin. We won the Grand Prix there. And, um, you know, and things just went up. And the following year, with him, I mean, he won the European Championships. He went through the, the whole of Arken, which was 10 days in those days. And we had a, the only fence he had down was the fourth round in the Grand Prix on the last day. And uh, that was about 6-6. Six, six. Well, they used to be, used to finish up as a puissance of so the Grand Prix did in those days, and um, I mean he was the most fantastic horse I ever sat on, because he could, he could just jump anything, and he could stand back and jump. He was like a, like a gazelle. I've always thought I was very lucky to have him when I was twenty because he went with, with you had to ride him with a bit of dash. You had to let him think he was half running away with you. Uh, when you're twenty, you can go along with that. If I'd had him when I was 45, he wouldn't have been a quarter of the horse. But I'd have tried to train him and do this and do that, and um, I don't think he would have accepted it. But he was unbelievable. And you, of course, won the gold medal there at the European Championships in 1961 with him. Yeah. Yeah, I had two Dinsdale stood behind me, I think, if I remember rightly, and uh, or maybe Alvin and one of the Ramondo, I think, in Arkin. So, um, but I remember, I remember jumping him, and he was. I mean, Arca was built for himself. And I come down to the combination the last day, and I missed him going in, into it. He put an extra stride, a little short stride in, helicoptered over the first bit, did, I think, three strides in a two strides, and then two strides in a one stride, but still went clear. And I always give him a little pat for that. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been very satisfying to beat Alvin on his home turf in the ground. Well, it was Alvin and Winkler. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean... Yeah. It wasn't the biggest star in the world in winter at them days with his sort of four or five gold medals and all that sort of stuff, you know. You collected a few medals along the way too, of course. Uh, Mexico, you mentioned, and then Munich with Manhattan. So many different horses, Munich with Manhattan and Seoul with Countrymen. And I read somewhere that you did have a, a, another horse that you had, you had a soft spot for. Who was your favourite? My favourite was a horse called Sportsman. I went to the Frank Kernans in Ireland. And I actually saw five good horses out there. I couldn't believe it. And um, I picked Sportsman as my favourite, and we eventually bought him. Usual bit of haggling with the, you know, with the Irish, which is all part of the sport. And um, he was just the most phenomenal horse because he was so intelligent. And um, I, I mean, he could—he probably didn't have quite the scope for an Olympic horse, but what he could jump. He was phenomenal at, and um, he'd just walk in the ring, and he'd nearly work out the, the course to go around himself, really. That's how intelligent he was. I mean, he was everybody's favorite in those days. Yes. Because he was such, he, 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 such a model, um, you, you know, everybody, and he, 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 was, he was just so good and so, such a nice person, you know, and everybody could see that. Obviously, a successful partnership of so many. Where he won the King George with you, didn't you? But then you you won that what six times on six different horses too, didn't you? I mean, that's not a bad record, David. No, um, the King's Cup was always quite a lucky class for me. Um, 
you know, but um, I remember the very first time I won it with Sunsolve and I got presented with the trophy. And I brought it home and I used to stay by the front door and it was put on a, on a ledge on the left-hand side of the front door and I used to look at it every night I went to bed. You know, it's the most beautiful trophy. Nowadays, of course, you're not allowed to take it home. It's locked behind bars. And it's worth like a quarter of a million quid or something like that. What is it? You can't replace it. But uh, I had it in my, at my front door for six months. And uh, I mean, it's the envy. In those days, to win the King's Cup was something that everybody, it was one of those classes that stood out in the whole world, really, the King's it Cup. It was. Queen's Elizabeth Cup was for, for women, of course, too. It's all changed now. I know. David, you, you obviously British national champion as well, I think six times when you, I mean, of all this record, which is, is a lengthy, incredibly lengthy, successful international career. Do any of those shows stand out for you as that, you know, they would be the first story you'd tell your grandchildren? I always enjoyed Dublin um, through the years, even the bad years of, you know, the, the political scene and we didn't send a team, but I went and I, I, I went on foot and I was always terribly well received in Dublin and I thoroughly enjoyed it and I had tremendous success there. Um, that would be one of my favourites. And the other one actually would be Rome, because Rome's the most beautiful horse show. The, the Italian crowds are quite pa- partisan. You, you, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to get everybody to beat you. If you're beating one of their heroes, they start <laughs> reacting. But it only makes you more determined anyway, you know. Yeah. But um, great venues. I mean, Ark and I never did a lot at Ark. I always thought it was too hard to win there. I mean, it's too... You took too much out of your horse to win in Arkan, but I mean, Arkan's probably the best show in the whole world these days. I mean, no question about it. I mean, in a way, Arkan should have the world championships every year. It's that bigger show. Well, of all of those achievements, David, when you look back at what you've accomplished as a rider, are there anything, any one of those that stand out in your mind as being what you would say you're most proud of? There's lots of ones. I mean, I won the Fox, Fox Hunter in 1966, so the novice was sent over specifically to win the class for Frank Kernan, and he did that. Um, I mean, I, I mean, there's a story behind a lot of the classes I can remember. Probably the most memorable was the last big one I ever won in Mill Street, the World Cup, with a horse called Lanigan, and um, I was in the jump off, and... There was a distance down the middle of the ring from the second to the third that everybody was doing in seven strides. I did it in eight and did it quicker than Michael Whitaker could do it in seven on my monsieur. And I managed to beat Michael by six hundredths of a second. Two of my sons were in the crowd. They were eating popcorns and they finished up on the roof of the building, I think. The popcorns <laughs> did um, when I'd won it. And um, I mean, and I remember going into the prize giving and Noel C, the proprietor of Mill Street, the owner, he said, David, this is very embarrassing. He said, we can't, we're, we're struggling to find your national anthem. And I just said to him, I knew it was my last big one. I said, no, don't worry. He said, I'm happy to stay here all night until you do find it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah. But, the, you know, it, I mean, it was, I think Michael watched the replay where they split the screen and they show both our rounds. And he couldn't believe that I could do eight strides as quick as he could doing seven on his fastest horse, my monsieur. And I think a little, you know, and I, 
maybe that was a little bit of the things I could do, really. Well, a terrific oh. record in Dublin, of course. I think six Grand Prix wins there. Sunsell, Mr. Softy, Philco. Uh, yeah. Queensway, cool. you won it on que- Queensway yeah. as well, and Sportsman. It's quite a record. Uh, yeah, and Nick won it on a couple of, a couple of horses I had, too. Um, he, he won it on Last Resort, and um, hopes are high. So the Dublin Grand Prix was always one of my favourites, as you can imagine. Absolutely. Well, of course, during all this career, which is as extensive, obviously, and and lengthy one, you did have time to get married and have three children, which we referred to earlier. How did you meet your wife, Liz, David? I was. I mean, I went to a little show up in Lancashire called Todd Morton, and uh, this young lady was there, and... Um, we, we we only had one groom, and I had three horses in the class. And I knew she was Graham, Graham Fletcher's sister. So I said to her, do you mind sitting on this one and ride it round? And um, she obliged. Um, my groom had no idea who she was. And when, when we'd finished the class, he offered her two shillings for, for riding my horse round, which she never took, of course. And um, we sort of sort of met after that, and then we got married. Well, you must have proposed to her somewhere. Now, where did you propose to her? Um, no, we went to a do on New Year's Eve in Tinton. I don't know whether you've ever heard of Tinton. There's yes. a great old Tinton Abbey. Tinton Abbey, yes. Yeah. And uh, we went outside for a walk just before midnight. And I proposed to her there on the wall, just on the side of the road, in the shadow of what the shadow in the, with, the, with, the, with the Abbey in the background. She, Ooh, she said, I didn't expect that. She said, how long have I got? I said, oh, you can I said, I'll, I'll wait. You know, I can wait till next year. And with that, the bells rung uh, for midnight. So I said, well, have you made up your mind yet? <laughs> uh, so shortest year I think she's ever, ever experienced. <laughs> so that's that, really. Then where did you get married? We got, we got married in Thursk, up in Liz's hometown in Yorkshire. What year was that, David? 1976, I think it was. Right. And then three children, and they've all uh, picked up your genes, haven't they? But Richard, he does agricultural surveying. Is he, does he have any interest these days in horses? Well, yeah, Richard was a funny one because, to be fair to the three of them, Richard, Richard had the most natural seat you could... He had a seat on, on a pony you'd dream for. But he didn't have his heart in it. And, um, you know, we, he did, we did a few classes and... In the end, he, 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 he wasn't bothered, and um, whereas Matthew was as keen as mustard from day one. And uh, J- James did it for a little while, but he gave up when he was 12 or 13, because he, he was a big lad, James, and he, 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 it didn't really suit him, and he went into rugby, but then now he's come back to doing driving. So um, that's a cycle, really. Two in horses and one in agriculture, so uh, there we go. Well, apart from your business interests, you also have had a role in, on the administration of the sport uh, in the British Show Jumping Association. That is, is still important to you, isn't it, David, to give back to the sport? Well, I, I grumble about it and the time you give and you keep going up to Stoneley, which is about 100 miles away. But you're right, I, I, I do thoroughly enjoy it. And, um, you know, you try to keep the sport going the way you'd like it to go, really. I mean... You, there's a lot of issues you fight for, some you lose, you accept it with grace and get on with life. But I do enjoy that side of it, I must admit.
How do you regard the sport now, David, compared to what it was in your day when, when you were at your most competitive? Because things have changed so much. Well, I think, I mean, the first thing is the courses have changed. Uh, and when I say that, they, 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 every, everything moves on in life. But I mean, I think the sport has been led by the course builders for the last 25 years or so. And I'd have a bit of a whinge about that because they've done away with all the different types of obstacles that we used to jump, gates, styles, hogs, back, triple, you know, them sort of things. And then nowadays it's, it's all poles, poles, poles. And I blame the course builders for that because they've sent the, the, the sport down one way. My biggest whinge about life is that from the, from the official side of it, everybody's either a judge or they're this or they're that or they're a course builder or a rider, but nobody takes responsibility for the whole sport. And people forget we are a sport and we're there in the entertainment business. And um, I think that sometimes is forgotten. I mean, Harvey used to have a wonderful saying, you know, he's more interested in putting bums on seats. And, and, and he did his best to do that. And, uh, but he was quite unique, and I think people forget that. We do have to entertain. And uh, the people who pay to come and watch us is what it's all about, really. And if we can't do that, we won't have a sport. You know, the sport will disappear. So we do have to entertain. But I wish people would remember that. Well, it's interesting you should mention Harvey because I wanted to bring him in because there was a period when you two were head-to-head and it caused a lot of entertainment, a lot of controversy, a lot of fun. When you look back now as, as older men on what you did then, what do you think that it did for the sport at that time? I think, I don't know whether he'd agree with me, but I think, I believe that Harvey was the best thing that ever happened to me because... When we were, we were very lucky. We were good pals outside. We traveled together for, I don't know, 20 years. You know, I'd meet him and he'd put his horses in my lorry and off we'd go abroad, maybe for six or eight weeks at a time. But he was a yardstick. And whatever he did, I was watching him like a hawk. I, I like to think he was watching me like a hawk too. And I think all good sports people need somebody to push them that extra mile. And uh, I, got, I got Harvey to thank for pushing me that extra mile because um, he was tough in the ring. Um, he never gave an inch. Wouldn't expect one, but wouldn't give one. And um, I, I think we were both better for having the other around at the time. That competitive spirit obviously raised the bar between the two of you, didn't you? Because you were both so competitive. Yes, I mean, we were there. I mean, we're very lucky sport in as much as outside we can be the best of pals and we help each other, blah, blah, blah. But as you go in, when you go into that ring, boy, oh, boy, there are no friends left. And, um, <laughs> you know, you go to win. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, I, I mean I've mean, i actually been against my sister before now, you know, before she got married. I mean, I, I've seen me doing a sort of a, a pull-in session with my sister so I could still beat her. And we were both in the, you know, the same family, for God's sake. They were very proud of that, but it was part of it, really. And I remember one show we went to at Dorset, and we were both in, only two in the jump off. We didn't want to go, but they persuaded us to jump off. And we both agreed that we'd just go around and jump and just go through the, through the throws of the jump off. I went in the jump and had a nice, nice round. She went in and went like the damn clappers <laughs> and beat me hands down. I thought, you little monkey. <laughs> 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 but they're all good, all good fun although you said earlier though david this it was all business it wasn't just fun it was business 
it was business at the end, but it was fun getting there. Yes. You know, you had to make it. You know, we enjoyed it. It was dead serious. Um, your horses were number one in your lives, and I mean what we used to do, and you know, I mean, I mean, what makes me sad when I think back, we used to go to shows with my granddad, and um, we used to we used to go out in the go to somebody's garden at night, especially down at Cornwall, climb over the hedge and, and pinch some cabbage leaves to go on the horses' legs at night to keep them cool. You know, we used to get them sort of tricks, um, you know, to keep our horses sound. They they always had the best of treatment. And, um, you know, that was part of it. Your affection with the horse that only grew and you respected it. And I've always believed, as far as my horses were concerned, the happier they are, the more they'd want to please me. And uh, that's always been one of the, the primary things in my life, really. Keeping my horses happy, but keeping them obedient, but happy. And what would you like to think that you have passed on to your sons of the horsemanship skills that you inherited as well? What would you like to pass on to them? Well, my father always used to tell me, he said, when things went wrong, never lose your temper. When you lose your temper, you're losing the battle. Keep a cold head. Persevere what you're doing. And when you're ready to give up, don't. Because in about five minutes, a horse will give in. So you have to stick it out and you will get where you want to go. And that was from my dad. Uh, finally, David, how would you like to be remembered? Is it as a horseman or a sportsman? Um, I think I was very lucky being able to ride a horse, but I'd, I'd like to think that, I'd love to think that people thought I, uh, that I won it in a very nice way, really. You know, uh, uh, I think, I'd like to people think I did it, I did it the right way. Um, what would you say to young people coming into the sport today when you've seen how it's changed and what the demands are of it now for young people? What would you, advice would you give them? Look after your horse. He's the only one that's going to help you at the end of the day when you're in that ring. Do your best. Train him the best. And um, just keep your... You never stop learning. You've ne you've ne you never know it all. And uh, you look after your horse and he'll look after you, hopefully. Well, no better message than that, David. I want to thank you so much for being my guest this week. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I hope you'll join me next time when we visit the life of another equestrian legend. In the meantime, please support our sponsor, Pessoa, by visiting their website at PessoaUSA.com.